It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one. The investigators tell us it seems the suspect was going to pass them, then turned and fired. Christine, Laura, what you're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations. Arise to support the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump. And I'm about to talk to him about allegations that he was involved with prostitutes in Moscow and that the Russians taped it and have leverage over him. Welcome back to Information Operation. On this Veterans Day, we have a special guest, Dr. John Hughes. He's a West Point grad, multiple tour veteran of the Middle East. Uh, welcome to the show, sir. Hi, thank you very much, Todd, and happy Veterans Day. Same to you. Same to you. So uh, it's a, a special day for those who of us who have served. But you have served uh, not just in the military, but you continue to serve. Uh, first, tell us about your family, um, because I read in the book that, you know, your family goes back several generations in the military. Roger, Todd. So um, I'm likely not I'm a too unique. A lot of families go way back, but mine actually um, has kind of an interesting journey. Um, in April this year, I was able to see the first of the war fighters in the family, um, Ensign um, William Hughes, who's buried in my family farm over in Virginia. He fought in the Revolutionary War. And then I have other ancestors who fought in the Civil War after that um, in the Spanish-American War. And then, of course, World War One. My my great grandfather was in the lead effort in the division um, in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive during World War One. Um, wow. My two grandfathers, one of them went to VMI, um, and he jumped into Normandy. Um, and and actually, next year in June, I hope to go see where he may have landed over near um, Saint Marie-Glise over wow. in Normandy for for the 80th anniversary. And my other grandfather was a West Point graduate, the the, the first one of the line. Um, who was a bomber pilot who was also bombing the rear lines behind Normandy. My father also went to West Point. He was a um, he was he was an infantryman in Vietnam in the 101st. Um, he served under the famous um, um, Charlie Beckwith mm -hmm. um, in the 101st in the Aishaw Valley, and then he was also a Cobra pilot as well. And then I've got two sisters wow. also who have served. Um, uh, both of them went to West Point, one older, one younger, and and all of us have, have deployed overseas. Wow, that is a, a special family. So. Let me ask you, I mean, because my family got off the boat in Connecticut and, and 400 years ago, and they, then they traveled all around the country. And I've done the same as you've done the research. And it's really interesting to go back and see the graves and, and the history that you didn't really know about, or at least I didn't know about. So, but do you, I, it, that caused me to have like a, uh, uh, some kind of purpose to, to continue to serve, to, to feel like I have something I have to do. I mean, do you have that feeling based on your family history? Oh, indeed. Yeah. Um, the uh, the book that I wrote that we can talk talk about later, but yeah. um, 
when I first wrote the book, it was it was meant to be an initially a memoir, but then it took an interesting twist um, about a year ago. I decided to get an interesting book for my dad um, because we we didn't know a lot about our um, his grandfather, my great grandfather, who was in World War One. I. I was told he was a character. He fought on the frontiers. He was a cavalryman, um, but that was about it. And so I got a book online on eBay, and it had the history of his division, and it was written um, in 1922. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, of course, called The Great War at the time. And then on eBay at the same time, I saw a helmet um, with his division um, crest um, scrawled on there, which is quite rare wow. because his division is not too well known. And then I, I, I kind of got off to the races, and I assembled an entire World War I mannequin of vintage gear to include <laughs> the 45 and the bayonet. And and this kind of um, spawned... Um, 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 some um, thoughts in my mind about what was the significance of what I actually did. Um, my ancestors fought, a lot of other ones did too, but one of the bigger causes um, were things to take a look at was why they fought. And 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 you served too, um, and I served over there too. So the question is, what is the good fight? And why did they actually fight? Of course, they were obviously patriotic, but it has to be something deeper than that. Yeah. Because I dug into the generations, every one of them had scars. Um, mm -hmm. And so my great-grandfather watched his um, father have issues from the Civil War. My grandfather watched his um, father struggle from his memories of World War One. My dad with my grandfather, my father as well from, from his experiences in the Vietnam War. And yet despite that, you and me both um, went, went in the military and we went overseas, volunteered to go overseas. I mean, I almost dropped out of medical school when the war began because I didn't want to, want to miss the war. Yeah. Unfortunately, wiser folks um, told me um, um, that, John, this is going to be the long war. Um, um, just stay the course. You'll have um, your chance. <laughs> I'm going to get the additional training as an ER doc. And it was right because I had, I, I had a way better skill set um, to go overseas. Yeah. So look, so look, so the question is why, why are we in this fight and what is the good fight that we're at? And about a year ago, my father was invited to speak at the Vietnam Memorial Rededication in Virginia. And it was actually an interesting event. And I was actually, it was an, it was an interesting introspection into my memories of the war at that time, because um, like you, I'm sure um, I saw a lot of Americans die, a lot of other um, of other coalition forces, but I never came home and watched them in the funerals. I was never there when they played taps. I was never there when they placed an American flag in the in the, in the laps of a loved one. And it was actually quite moving, mm -hmm. even though it was um, dedicated just to the Vietnam veterans. Um, I felt a sense of of connection um, that they were mm -hmm. they were also speaking to the veterans of of all the generations. So the book is American Doctor Coming Home to War. Uh, first let's go into your, uh, before we talk about the book, let's talk about your, your career. I mean, so after West Point, what did you do? After West Point, um, I wanted to be a warfighter for a time because I ultimately wanted to go to medical school, but when you're a doctor in the army, it's not quite the same. Um, so I branched infantry for, um, the two years, the medical school was actually pretty cool. They held a spot for me. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went to airborne ranger school was in the 82nd airborne division, went to Haiti with them. And then I came back just in time to, to, um, to begin medical school. And then from there, did my four years, trained as an ER doctor. And then coming out of there, um, I married an Air Force Academy graduate. And it's, oh. and it's kind of hard to get stationed at the same places. Um, but they had a spot over in Fort Carson. And they had a brigade going to Iraq for a year. And, of course, most doctors at that point in the war in 05 weren't too keen for it. Yeah. Um, so I called up the colonel in charge and said, I'll take it. And he's like, you know, they're, they're going to, to Iraq for a year. And I'm like, yep. Um, um, so I'm, um, I'm a, so I went over there. 
um, I was able to see the um, uh, the fourth idea was actually cross-attached um, to the 101st, which I thought was cool because I got to wear the 101st patch coming back. Nothing against the, the fourth idea, guys, but I did, um, again, a little bit of a connection with the past, just like when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division as, as an infantry officer with the same um, with the same division. And I actually wore some of the same um, unit patches that my grandfather had worn way back then, and he actually earned them back in um, World War II. Wow. Um, but when I was in uh, when I was in Iraq, I was there for two weeks, and that first two weeks, I, I had a great brigade commander, um, and we had a death actually very early on, and it was a guy I couldn't save, and it hit me in two ways. One, um, it showed me the limits to what I can do as a doctor. Out of residency, I felt I was su superhuman, and I could rescue anybody, and yet, and yet I had a specialist who died right in um, front of me, and that hit me very, very hard that um, this is for real, and there's um, limits to what I can do as a doctor. But what was important too was after that was done, later on in the evening, our brigade commander called the officers together and he made a very profound statement that, that I dedicated a few chapters in the book to. He said, make every death count. Mm -hmm. And so throughout that time, every trauma that I would do, every mission I would, would go on, I would do an AR with the staff. We would, we, would, we would take a look, do we have all the right gear? Somebody gave us new gear, did it work, not work? What could we have done different team-wise, this and that, to make sure that the, that, the, that the next time we were a little better so that we gave either an American or coalition force just a little bit um, a, a more chance um, a, to survive. Mm -hmm. So obviously uh, you had a lot of experience in the sandbox, but your real fight started when you came home. Tell us about that. What did you see? I mean, what did you... What what activated you to get back in the fight? I guess is the question. Well, after Iraq, the fight actually kind of um, found me. Okay. Um, af after Iraq, I went over to Special Forces and I served multiple tours in Afghanistan, and then one last time at a British field hospital. And what I saw over there was the same thing going on, the same fights, the same battles, and it, be and it became almost um, a helpless situation where I was at, where I was the team doc taking care of the bodies. Um, and I couldn't do anything about it. And so I got very, very frustrated. And I got out of the army actually at 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, I gave, gave up obviously retirement and all that. Um, and, and so I worked in the um, uh, civilian world. I'm in the ER. I was put out of sight, out of mind. I was going to turn turn to my family and mm -hmm. begin a new life. And then about a year later, things began to change. I began to notice things in the medical literature. Medicine, like the military, are, are two professions where um, folks vote left or right, and that's great. Um, I believe in a two-party in, in two state, but when folks come to work, they're supposed to, to check their, their um, um, politics at the door. Mm -hmm. And I was noticing that in both realms, that was not the case anymore. But one of the big kickers was I began to find it in ways I, I didn't um, ex expect to see. Um, I love sports. I'm sure you do watch yeah. sports, school, football. Um, I particularly loved basketball, and I was actually um, fortunate to watch our beloved Spurs when the, um, the 2014 championship game five took my son, it was fantastic. I got season tickets, but in 2019, a few things happened. One, that was when the, the Houston Rockets, um, a general manager made that infamous tweet um, about um, um, Hong Kong and the rights being yep. um, lost over there. The NBA rolled over. I canceled my tickets and I haven't been to a single, single game since. And that hurt because yeah. I love, I love sports. I love the Spurs, but I couldn't, I couldn't um, fathom paying money to a, to an organization that um, clearly um, it took money over patriotism and doing the right thing on um, freedom of speech. And on the back end of that, they were espousing rights here in America. So I thought that was a, a double standard and I, and I could have no part of it, of it anymore. But my kid's school was actually the bigger um, call, to, call to action. 
Um, so my son is very, very bright. He bounced around to, to various schools as we found ones to um, challenge him more. Mm -hmm. and, and we found this um, fantastic school in town. It was a very liberal school. We knew all the professors were liberal. But again, I, I thought that the educators were as professional as the doctors and the folks in the military were supposed to be. And I was wrong. Mm -hmm. um, by the, the, the time the 2020 election rolled around, um, politics were alive and well. He was being um, uh, censored in academic chat rooms by the other kids who were creating bots who were um, uh, censoring anything at all that was not pro-Biden. Um, and, and, and I had a discussion with the school principal who was white and all the headmasters were all white, but he was unabashedly um, um, to the far left and he was imposing his, his um, views on the school. They had a summer reading list um, where they picked a lot of things from um, a critical race theory. And I got conflicting stories from the, the administrators and why it actually happened. And he was def 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 defending what he, what he had done. And I told him, look, if you really believe in what you, in um, quotas and, and what you're actually speaking about, two out of three of you guys need to resign and you need to have a minority there because guess what? Two thirds of our school um, um, are not white at the mm -hmm. school and, and yet all, all the high staff were, um, were white. And so that was, yet you get another flashpoint. But the real turn, turn of events happened to, um, um, happened a few months after that. When COVID hit, um, things changed. So the other hat aware obviously is a, a, a civilian ER doctor. So in addition to being on the front lines of the war, I was on the front line of COVID when that thing um, first hit. And we mm -hmm. were all scared. We, we were all looking for information. Um, we didn't fear the virus, but, but, but we had something new and we had a paucity of information out there. So we were just scrambling to, to find um, resources out there. And so early on, um, but the doctors were being very, very pragmatic in doing what they do in war too. It's where you, you do the, the the check right, left seat, right seat, and right. so you have, you, have, you have folks who have experiences. They try new medications. You know they have observations, and folks were trying to figure out in the chat rooms how best to treat this new virus. And by March and April timeframe, that all came to a crashing end. It's where my um, my professional body, the American Board of Emergency Medicine, um, began to censor um, individuals who were um, speaking out in social media, not against anybody, but they were trying to give their viewpoints on what they thought the virus actually was. And then my professional body, who does my credentialing, um, came down the, the very next year and threatened any ER, ER doctor to pull our livelihood because if you aren't credentialed as an ER doctor, um, you, you can't work if you, if you speak out anything negative about the vaccine or the masks. And the real nail in the coffin in the whole thing um, was my West Point reunion. Um, so yeah. during COVID, um, West Point used to have reunions back at back at back at back at West Point, where you'd, you'd go, go there and you'd see all the parades, you'd go tour the barracks, and then you would go to a football game. It would usually be the Army Air Force or, or one of those games. Right. Um, but because of COVID, um, the rules were so tough to have a reunion back there. Um, they began to have Melsor. So I, of course, I'm a, I'm a voted to have it here in, in um, Texas. That was quite nice because because I obviously live out here. And when I was there, um, they have a, a tradition, and I'm not certain if this is what they what they do on, do with the Air Force um, Academy, but they have a memorial luncheon for the grads who have passed away over the years, killed in the war, whatever. Um, but then they also have um, about an hour where they have the ranking graduates who at our time we had um, a two one-star generals. Now they're um, the two stars now to give a state of the army. One of them was the dean at West Point, and one of them is a rising star, and I'm sure he's going to be a four-star general um, someday. But this this was um, three months after the, the fall of Afghanistan. Hmm. And, um, they, were, they, they gave this big, long speech about how great the military was. They said, don't believe what you see in the news. They began to mention um, uh, censorship um, um, terms that you're seeing in the, in, the, in the news there, and I was kind of taken aback by that. 
And I promised myself at first I wasn't going to say anything because a lot of, you know, old grads always say, um, you know, the core has gone to hell and all this kind of stuff. Right. I had to stand up and speak. And I and I called them both out right then and there. And I said, how can you guys say what's what's um, everything is going great when that just happened in Afghanistan? And, and West Point is supposed to be the bastion of ethics for the army. And you had a disproportionate number of three and four stars who were in charge over there who were, who were speaking false truths about the war. And so at that point, um, a nugget began to come into my mind where I believe in staying in your lane. I was a doctor at the, at the brigade and the battalion level. I'm an, and I'm an era doctor on the front lines, but I think it was time to document um, what I saw over there. So my book is restricted for the most part in the war um, until my times in Iraq, 0506, and then the years I was over there in Afghanistan, and I was trying to capture in print my experiences um, so you could see the reality on the ground, and then I would have a commentary with them, a, a direct quotes of the generals, NATO. It wasn't just American. It was the British and other ones, too, giving these fantastic rosy pictures um, and I'm and I'm taking care of Afghan uh, uh, platoons who are being annihilated left and right, and it yeah. was it wasn't supposed to be happening. They're supposed to have gear. They're they're getting their eyeballs blown out of their head, and they were they were supposed to have protective um, equipment. They were getting gunshot wounds in the in the torso or the box, where if they had armor plating like they were supposed to have had, um, um, those those types of injuries would have never happened. Hmm. So you saw it real time as to what they were saying back home wasn't true uh, in the in the field. Is what you're saying. Well, not in the least. I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big, proud American Eagle logo. The least. Yeah. So, again, the book is American Doctor Coming Home to War. Um, the medical establishment obviously lost complete all their credibility during the last few years. Is that possible to get back? Or what is what is the path forward for the medical establishment in general, not just the military, but across the board? That's a fantastic question, because unfortunately, my conclusion from the whole deal is I don't think it's going to happen from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Historically, there are some various professions, the military, medicine, legal, I mean, a few others where, where they're supposed to be like the old medieval guilds, right? So you have mm -hmm. folks who get uber trained. And then um, from the inside, they're supposed to police themselves with their own ethics, skill sets, accepted um, uh, practices, care, and things like that. Unfortunately, at this point, again, because I think um, I think medicine has slowly been drifting left, and that's fine as long as their politics do not do not manifest themselves in um, clinical and public health policy. But I think all that has gone out the window with the last election. I think it's emboldened a lot of people. And I have a lot of um, quotes in the book from websites from the American Medical Association, my ER group, the American Association of um, Pediatrics. Um, I went on a letter writing campaign and I had some interesting email exchanges with um, two presidents of the American Medical um, Association. I had to sit down at Starbucks um, with the president of my um, emergency medicine group, 60 of a thousand ER doctors um, she represents. I've known her for, for quite some time and I brought mountains and mountains of um of evidence of what I saw was blatant political bias um, within the organizations. And, and 
as a student of history, and I do not call myself um, a historian from the standpoint of I'm not a professional of it, I did major in it, but I love reading about history. But as a doctor, when you look through history, there's never been a good outcome when I'm, I'm a politics have intruded into medicine. I mean, if you look at the at the, at the evolution of, of the Holocaust, in my opinion, it began in the medical lane in, in um, Austria when they began to exterminate undesirable kids who were going to hold back the master race. And they were going into hospitals, kids who had any, any, any kind of mental health issues, birth defects, um, were being um, killed in the hospitals. And, and then that, of course, morphed into something higher. And, and if you look at other um, authoritarian regimes around the world, the medical community, I think, in, in large part is complicit to it. I mean, look what um, China did during COVID. They, they took advantage yeah. of, of, of that and the medical lane in, in order to impose their will on society. So to get back to our group, um, I had multiple discussions with these folks, and the answer was always the same. They would, of course, completely deny it. And then they would say, well, you, you just need to work your way up the ranks. The problem is, um, is that these folks are not um, directly elected from the, from the doctors themselves. Um, they're elected from um, the delegations, and it takes years and years to get in those delegations. And so to both, I said, okay, fine, why, why don't we form a conservative doctor organization? And, and you know, it, of course, um, denied because they said that was a hostile action. And one, one of them dropped the F-bomb at that point, called me a 2% right um radical doctor and then stormed off and she insulted my wife and other things as well. So, I mean, this is what we're, what we're actually after. And so um, today, that, that, that usually happens when you, when you, that usually happens when you get to the right point, they usually blow up and scream and call you names and walk away. But, anyway. Oh, indeed. Now, yeah. so what, what the takeaway to me is, is that these organizations are so infiltrated with, with, with folks from a activist left-leaning political philosophy that um, change is not going to come from within. Now, these organizations do not make public policy, but they do have a lot of input into public um, policy, as you've seen with, with, a, with a lot of flash issues um, that we're, we're seeing in society, particularly COVID. But then you get at the higher level, and I, mean, I used to watch um, Rand Paul tear into um, Dr. Fauci and a bunch of, bunch of other ones too, but you have at the highest level, those are the policymakers. Those are the appointed officials who do make health policy that, that has very real implications for, um, um, for the average American corporations and other things in America. And they made it abundantly clear, everyone that, that I saw, that they were not willing to be held accountable I'm a, I'm a for anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a big believer in Eisenhower's medical and, or the military industrial complex some theory and I, think, and I think it's not hard for, for the average American to see that the same thing has happened in the medical community where you have the, um, the medical industrial complex. Yeah. When I was in the army, I had to sign a statement when my wife first retired before me saying I would not refer patients to her to have transparency of where the money was actually going. And yet you have folks in the vaccine boards, you have, you have, you have um, Dr. Fauci and his organization who patently refused over and over again um, I'm going to divulge if they had any influence at all from the pharmaceutical industry. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? Um, yeah. If there's nothing to hide, um, they should be completely transparent. You're an academy grad too. And um, the transparency is everything. They, they, there, there should be nothing to hide in this deal. So uh, how did it happen? I mean, do, do you think it was just a slow creep? Or, I mean, to me, the scale is fantastic of every medical organization, you know, every military command, all pushing the same thing at the same time, education, go down the list. I mean, it, I mean, it, it's almost like there was a, you know, reptilians coming and taking over society. I mean, wh what happened in your mind? 
Well, I think each one is slightly different. And of course, uh -huh. this is just my opinion as a mid, a mid John Hughes here. But my opinion about the military is, um, and I mean, I've been asked this before. I do not believe our military generals right now, the vast majority of them anyway, at least, are not, are not hardcore Marxists. And I don't necessarily believe that they're all necessarily woke, but I think as a class, I think they've become weak. Mm -hmm. um, when you go when you go back, this is an issue that goes back decades. My first taste that I kind of hinted out in the book was in Haiti. I was not there for the initial invasion, but I was there um, a year and a half afterwards for the peacekeeping operations afterwards. And I remember um, we had to guard Madeleine Albright coming down there at, at a school. She came down there. We escorted her out to, to the school and back. And we had been defending the um, Air Force engineers just from um, local cr um, criminals and thugs, you know, just keeping them away. It was not a shooting war um, at, right. at that point. But um, she gave this great speech about how Haiti was being renovated and, and it was going to become this great, great, great country to rise out of the ashes. She pulled away. We pulled away our concertina wire and the school was ransacked by the um, thugs in the school. And that was just about every place I was at. I have a quote in there of David Petraeus, who was then, I think, a major or a lieutenant um, colonel talking about what a, what, a, what a great education it was for him as a nation building um, a piece. And so you have to ask yourself, why is that? Haiti was in complete um, failure as a military operation. Um, and and so you, you transcend through um, to the um, to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and you ha and, and you have almost 20 years of um, general officers. Now, the first year or two, I can't um, fault them because it, it wasn't exactly clear. Um, but after a year, um, a two or three was very clear um, what the outcome was going to be in both wars based upon um, the enemy we, we were um, fighting, our refusal to acknowledge what was actually going on in Iraq. The word sectarian violence was not allowed to be spoken in, 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 in 06 when I was there. But again, I saw the bodies. Yeah. Um. So I think it's basically weakness. Very few generals spoke out. I was only aware of one two-star back in, I think it was 12, who was working with the Ministry of the Interior who spoke out against um, Karzai's corruption. He was fired and sent home. And I'm sure you've seen other um, examples as well. Matthew Lomar with his book, call, um, Calling Out Marxism. Mm -hmm. And there's been a few others along the way, but the message has been quite clear. If you speak out against what's what's going on, if you don't rubber stamp the politics of, of this this whole thing, and if you don't stand up and do what's right, um, we're going to can you. And I, th and I think the, the, um, the, uh, the generals have learned that well. I um, mean, if you also look at the military industrial complex too, um, there was a paper out last year that said that 80% of three and four stars are now um, retired and work and working on the boards of the yes. big defense um, corporations. So you have generals who have learned that even though Americans are dying on the battlefield for no strategic outcome that is worthwhile, but they keep their mouth shut because you won't get, get um, promoted and you won't get a cushy job afterwards if you rock the boat. And yeah. so I think that, and I think that was the uh, the, uh, the perfect storm when um, the, um, the DEI came along because these same guys, and again, I don't think most of them buy into it, but I think most of them are into self-preservation um, of their career, so they don't want to speak out about it, or they endorse it as much as they have to in order to, um, to, to, to not um, I'm gonna lose their um, jobs. So, uh, you know, let's move to the service academies. On that vein, uh, General Clark is my classmate at Air Force, who is the soup, and he has been aggressively pushing the DEI and lying about it, and pushing the vaccines to the fact that, you know, he's had deaths on the terrazzo of guys walking to class, dropping dead. So uh, I just find that fascinating, you know, and I, he's a, an African-American man. And I, I said, look, you could be famous. You could go down and there's the best soup in history. Just come out and say, this is wrong. It's racist. We're not doing this. So you'll lose your job. But, you know, 
your place in history will be secure, but he didn't take that route. So I just, I don't understand that. But um, anyway, how do we fix the academies? I think at this point, the, um, I mean, again, this is just my humble opinion. Um, I got out of the military, military several years ago, but I am a grad with some skin in the game. I think at this point, though, because of the, um, the generational weakness of the general officer corps, I think, honestly, you're, you're going to have to cut the head off the snake, meaning I think the only way to fix it is going to be to revamp the entire curriculum, but you're also going to have to send a message. And just like in any other field, um, if, if, if you're an NFL team and your coaches lose for um, 20 years, you're gone. You're, you're going after two or three years. Same thing in the corporate world. I think they, they need to fire all the deans because the deans are, are pushing the curriculum and all the wokeness coming from the, 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 the professors who are there because they're handpicking them. And then also you have to fire the soups for, from the top. And then you just have, you're just, it's going to have to be a witch hunt to see who's who's supporting there. And hopefully most folks will, 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 get, will get it into line. I think most folks are the silent majority, which again is why why when I've been asked, why I think these, these guys are Marxists and I'll say, well, the guys who are, who are generals now were my classmates. And so um, they were not Marxists back then. They weren't Marxists when, when I served with them as recently as a few years ago in Afghanistan. But I think they have a weakness from the standpoint of they, they, don't, they, they don't have the courage and integrity to speak up. And I agree, and I agree with you. Um, any general who would have um, thrown his stars on the table, like when, when I criticized um, the General Donahue for being the, um, the cleanup man, he was an honorable guy and, 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 and I have friends who, who know him quite, quite well from his experiences in his youth. But he would have been a hero to most of America who believes in the Constitution if he had um, refused the mission, thrown his stars on the table and says, I refuse to execute this mission as it is because it dishonors all the, the Americans we're going to leave behind. Yes, of course. So, again, the book American Doctor Coming Home to War. Tell us about writing the book and, and what do you want people to know about the book? Well, the book was an interesting process. It took me about a year and a half. And. At a certain point, I had to cut off all the information in there because the topics that we're speaking about are very, very fluid. And in fact, um, yes. when you speak about speak about General Clark, he's been a flashpoint twice in the last few months. Some a testimony in July, and then and then he also got in trouble couple a bit with the video I posted about the cadet um, criticizing Congress at that DEI conference. But um, so I had to cut the whole piece off at one point. But my intent with this thing was um, a twofold. One was to wake up folks to what's actually going on. My wife is a psychologist, and I'm very, very smart. I'm more brilliant than I am, um, but um, she um, helped me to come up with a great paradigm to see what was going on. And this tra transcends both um, sides as far as indoctrination. You have create, indoctrinate, and enforce. Create is creating a false history of what's going on, and DEI and CRT and the racial oppression history that they're beginning to, to um, teach is um, neck deep in that. I was at West Point two months ago, and, they, and with a straight face, they were saying that only only heterogeneous militaries have won in history, and they're they're doing that to justify that. Yeah, and so so you have the the, the creating a false um um I'm a fact or truth, and then you have indoctrinate, and in both fields, the indoctrination is going um fast and furious. In medical schools now, they ha they have warped the Hippocratic oath in into inserting very very much woke um. Um, a critical race theory vernacular into it. You have the rise of all these green doctor programs. Why doctors are involved in green programs, I have no idea. Um, but it's um, a it's um, a permeating down. And when, when you say green doctor, I think of Venice Beach and the marijuana dispensary on the corner. But <laughs> oh, this is climate change. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I told yeah, the head yeah. ER doctor, I said the easiest way to publish in literature right now is to stick the words climate change or disenfranchised patients racially. Um, I'm winning a research paper and it will be published guaranteed. 
Um, and, yeah. it, and that made, made, made her very, very mad. And then the last piece is, of course, enforce. So enforce, you have professional enforcement, which is happening in medicine. Pro uh, professional enforcement is happening in the military, a.k.a. Matthew Lohmeyer and others. And you have the professional or, or the social enforcement in our country, um, so, social media. Just like in COVID, um, they came out fast and I'm furious for, for those two California doctors who said, hey, COVID's not, it, it isn't what you guys think it is and the lockdowns are going to hurt us. And they were sh shut down online. And in the last year or two, they've been, they've been, they've been um, uh, completely vindicated. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, what else, uh, what's the best place to get the book and uh, what else do you want people to know? Well, the other piece of what I had there is that I wanted this to be a documentary for all time. Fact right now and truth is something that scares the heck out of me. Um, I devoted about a page to that where when I was a medical student, things were in books. Books books were in print, so you couldn't change what was what was in the book. Nowadays, everything is going online, and that's nice because as a med stud, it was like being in ranger school. I, I had to lug around a 50-pound backpack full of, full of, full of all, the, all the medical books. Everything is, is going online. The scary thing is, 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 is who the gatekeepers are of what's online. And so folks need to question what they see and who the gatekeepers are of the information. This isn't just medicine about their health. This isn't just about the military, but it's everything that, that, that they're seeing. But I also wanted to document this in print, kind of like Matthew Lohmeyer did for the Marxism piece. And also Robert Green did is a lieutenant yeah. commander in the Navy for the COVID piece. Both those books are fantastic. And, and, I, and I think folks should also read those books too, because again, it's a snapshot in time capture that can't be changed. Um, the, the, um, the, the facts of what actually happened. And so I want to document what I saw as a doctor in Iraq and Afghanistan contrasted with, 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 with all the excuses back here. And that this was, it was, it was not a new thing in Afghanistan two years ago that actually happened. The books that were written um, 13 years ago, back in, back in um, 2010, had the same conclusions that Amelie was um, uh, pretending to be a genius about in front of Congress 13 years later and over, and over a thousand American deaths later, which is unconscionable. Yes. Yes. So where where's the best place to get the book? Is there a place to go where um, all the money doesn't go to Amazon? <laughs> oh, indeed. Well, I have the book on Amazon. Um, it is. Um, I did a self. I'm a published through. I'm a, I'm a through Amazon. It's in paperback form and on Kindle form. And the first year of any proceeds, um, a ten percent. I'm I'm going to don donate to a special forces. I'm a cause for wounded and and, and deceased veterans. Excellent. John, thanks so much for coming on, and thank you for your contributions to Armed Forces Press. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, keep it up, please. Uh, our audience loves you. So thank you, and we'll, uh, we'll have you back. And thank you, Todd. Happy Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day. Take care.